Adeya Depatan is an accomplished wheelchair basketball superstar, and through his time at Team GB, he won a bronze and gold medal in the Paralympic Games. He is also a highly sought after motivational speaker. He gave a speech in the launch for the London 2012 Olympic Games, and he continues to give talks for some of the biggest businesses in the world. He's an equally talented presenter. You will probably recognize him from back in the days for CBBC, and most recently coverage of the Paralympic Games in Rio, Children in Need, and the travel show on BBC. I'm very excited to have the opportunity to take a deep dive and explore where his ambition and motivation comes from. Was he born with it, or was it acquired? From as young as four or five years old, I knew I had a responsibility to be successful. Suddenly, me being good at sport, my race went out the window, my disability went out the window, the way I dressed went out the window. The only thing that was important was that I was good at sport. I was bonkers. A 16-year-old kid, 1989, to go out, live on his own, I just decided that I was going to try and make it into this squad. And when I did, it was just overwhelming. What's so incredible about achieving your dreams is that you can then go on to achieve more dreams. Why try and achieve one dream when you can achieve 10 dreams? Hello, and uh, welcome to another episode of P Squared. Very honored and happy to have Adaya Dapatan here. As I mentioned in the intro before, I grew up, and I said to you in the first meeting as well, I grew up watching you on, on the TV. So Makes it was, me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> so it was pretty surreal when we first met. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, just very happy to have you here and be having this conversation. So you remember all the all the gunge? All the gunge, classic. TV, yeah, name that poo, all <laughs> those games on exchange. Look, so how long were you doing that for? Oh, CBBC, it feels like another lifetime. Well, it feels a lifetime ago. Nice portion of your life? Yeah, happy? it was, it was. That was um, about five years of my life I yeah. did that for. And it was, yeah, it was really, really good. You know, children's TV is a really good... Um, place to, to cut your teeth and, and learn um, the craft of, mm -hmm. of TV making because it's chaotic, there's often no plan. Uh, well, there is a plan and the plan is chaos. Um, <laughs> organized chaos. Organized chaos and you've got young kids coming into the studio, uh, super excited because it's their first time on TV. Um, so there's so many things that could go wrong, but it, it's just great because your, your heart is going at 300 beats per minute all the time when you're doing it. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it was my first live TV experience yeah. as well. Well, I think we're jumping, jump, jumped way ahead there. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you're, so, like, you're so much more than just a, a TV presenter. You're, you're now an author, a children's author, um, a Paralympic gold medalist. Uh, Paralympic bronze, World Cup gold World medal, Cup. yeah. yeah. And, and the Paralympics bronze medalist, yeah. Um, so let's just go way back yes. to just where it all started, because very interested in kind of discussing your journey in presenting and what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. But I think equally as important is everything that got you to that point. So. What was your upbringing like? My upbringing? Um, it was good. It was, um, I suppose the early years were, were, were quite intense, mm -hmm. um, mainly because uh, I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, and um, so at 15 months old, I contracted polio. Polio is a waterborne disease found in unclean water, which affects 
your spinal cord and it stops messages being sent to certain parts of your body and it mainly affected my left side of my body and because of that my parents um, made a big decision and that was to bring me to the UK mm -hmm. from Lagos because they very quickly realized and understood that life for disabled kids or disabled people full stop in Nigeria was extremely tough. My dad was already, he'd already planned to come over to the UK to do some studies. Mm -hmm. um, he was a school teacher. I think he was uh, trying to get promotion to become a head teacher at his school. And I think he felt if he'd uh, topped up his qualifications in the UK, then he would, um, he'd be able to get that job easy. But, you know, whilst he was over in the UK, I contracted polio. Um, my mum wrote a letter to him. That's how long ago it was, you can't phone. It was one of those air, um, it, I think most of the people watching this are not of that generation, but it was airmail letters. That must have been quite a hard letter to, yeah, to write. Yeah, she wrote a letter. I, I, I remember seeing the letter vaguely when I was younger. Um, oh, so they kept it? Yeah, my mum kept, she used to keep all of us, all the posts, contacting someone um, just uh, a, a few thousand miles away back then was a big deal. Yeah. And you'd have to put all these stamps on it and it'd be this airmail letter, which was an envelope. It was a blue em uh, envelope that unwrapped and you wrote on the inside of that envelope and then you folded it up and, and sent it. And I remember um, seeing it and it, my mum had written, you know, um, my parents call me, my, my full name is Ade Doyen, and my parents call me Doyen. Mm -hmm. um, and my mum's saying that Doyen is ill, he's contracted polio. Um, and I, I mean, I couldn't really understand everything, but you know, the gist of it was, you gotta come back and we've got a, a really important decision to make. And the decision was actually amplified more um, because my older sister, uh, who's only a year older than me, she was also, also had a disability, she had Down syndrome. So my parents uh, were in Lagos, Nigeria, didn't have much money, and they had two disabled children. And they had a really tough decision to make in terms of they couldn't afford to, to, to take us both out of Nigeria. Um, and they had to decide whose needs were more urgent. And because I couldn't walk, um, uh, because of polio, it was debilitating and my disability was physical. They decided that I was probably the one that was more urgent. So they took me to the UK first when I was three years old. And the plan was uh, once they had enough money, they'd bring my sister over later. Um, so why is the reason why I said it's intense? One, you know, you're moving to a new country, your, your parents are obviously distressed because they're leaving their friends and family behind. They used all their savings, borrowed money from friends and family to be able to come over to the UK. We moved in with my aunt who lived in the East End of London. She had a tiny council flat. Um, and uh, they, they also continuously reminded me, even at that young age, that you're the lucky one. Your sister is back in Nigeria, so you need to work. You need to be successful. How did that impact you then? That constantly being put into your psyche? Um, Do you think that was a positive it, or negative effect? It was, it was, I mean, it was a combination of guilt um, in terms of my younger sister. I mean, my older sister is, uh, was in Lagos and I was the one who all of my family or my parents, um, you know, time and attention was being focused on. 
um, and it made me feel like I had to, I had to succeed. Like it a responsibility. Made, yeah, I, I, I mean, from from as young as four or five years old, I knew I had a responsibility to be successful. I mean, I maybe I didn't. Um, comprehend and I didn't have that existential sort of knowledge but but I had the feeling that whatever I did it had to be good and it and I had to succeed in anything that I did at what moment do you feel like that really started to materialize and by that question I mean at what moment did you really comprehend those feelings do you remember a, a specific moment in time um, or was it more kind of later on in life when you no, correlated it back? I, I, I wouldn't say there was a, a, a pinpoint moment. Um, there wasn't like a, a, a light bulb moment where I woke up and just said, yeah, this is it. I think it was gradual steps. Like it, everything in this world, you know, um, you, you, you learn gradually. You know, you, you, you take two steps forwards and three steps back, mm -hmm. you know, each time. But every time you do, you learn something. And uh, I, I suppose going to school uh, and suddenly seeing how the world perceived me. Uh, I went to a mainstream school um, full of able-bodied kids. I was one of, well, I was the only disabled uh, kid in that school. I was one of maybe three black children in that school, and this is in the late 70s, early 80s. So immediately, I was different, you know? And also, uh, added to that, the fact that my mum, who's a very flamboyant dresser and person, dressed me up in a pink um, checkered flared suit on my first day of school. Why? Why? Because she, she thought that was cool. She thought that was the thing that was sharp. It made me look ready for school. You know, I was detail, attention to detail. Everybody will look at me and respect me. Um, Looking back on that now, do you appreciate her insight and where she was coming from? It may be, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I just look like a young pimp, actually. You know what <laughs> I mean? In, in, this, in this pink checkered suit. But no, I, I think what, it, what, what was good about it is it kind of made me learn from a young age to not be afraid to be different. Yep. You know, I, I think initially going to school, I was just, I was sweating and I was so nervous just thinking, I look really ridiculous. I look complete, everybody else is just in jeans and t-shirt or whatever. And I've come to school with a bow tie, an afro with a side part in the size of Blackwall Tunnel and a pink checkered suit. All I needed was a cane, you know, and I would just be like, I know, Pimp Daddy, Huggy Bear or something like that at, at like seven or eight years old. But I stood out and I think maybe what my mum taught me, and I, I don't know, it was, uh, I'm not sure whether it was on purpose, maybe it was. You know, I always say, actually, what, the great thing about it is it took my mind off my uh, physical disability and put my mind onto my fashion disability, mm -hmm. you know, because I was just wor worried about the way I looked. But it, it kind of made me happy and comfortable with standing out. Now or back then? Now. 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 Yeah, back then. So how were you back then? Because obviously oh. if you're one of three black kids in your school, yeah. you stand out anyway. Mm -hmm. Adding on a disability, that must have made you feel really singled out. So how did you deal with that? Um, yeah, I, I think you don't fully understand um, race as a seven or eight year old kid. 
and you don't fully understand disability as a seven or eight year old kid. So how did you, sorry to cut you off, how did you understand it then? Uh, What I understood is that kids called me certain names and uh, you know, they were, um, and I wouldn't say it was I wouldn't say it was because they were bad kids. They probably learned it from their parents mm-hmm. and because I was different. You know, I got called the N-word. I called, got called black this um, a few times. And I got called cripple and I got called peg leg, you know, and those were a shock to the system, you know, to be seven, eight year old. And then suddenly people say that. And then suddenly people, you have other kids as well as adults saying things like that to you and, you do, and, and they hurt but they were also confusing. They were also like, why? I'm just the same as you guys. Um, But what it did do is it made me realize that people were gonna judge me early on by the way I looked, by, by, but that people were gonna make a decision about who they thought I was before they even, before I even had a chance to open my mouth and say to them, hey, this is me, I'm quite a cool guy. Mm -hmm. I'm quite funny, you know, give me a chance. But, so immediately I knew from then on, I had to take control of the situation. Maybe not, um, it was more intuitively this came to me. It wasn't something that I, I, I could, if you'd asked me back then, that I could articulate. But I knew if I came into a room, I had to make my presence felt. And how did you do that? Um, by being a little bit louder, by, um, you know, being quite confident. I, I my. Both my parents were teachers, so at a young age I was I was quite articulate, and I was um, you know definitely more confident than I think other kids of that age would have been. And I had that naivety that you have as a kid, where you go into stuff um, without this tainted mind. You know, you Any go preconceptions. There, yeah, no well. preconceptions. You just go in there and you just think, yeah, I, I, I want to show everyone that I'm cool before mm-hmm. they even before they start judging me and start thinking that I'm not. (laughs) So if you could go back to your eight or 10 year old self back then, Mm. what would he think of you now? What would they think of me now? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Eight, 10 year old me. I love that question. Yeah. They'd be like, shit, you convinced mum and dad to let you get dreads. (laughs) Because my parents were like, there's no way you had green dreads. That is for Rastafarians. You're not a Rastafarian. Uh, and all of that. And I, I had to wait till I left home before I, I grew dreadlocks. So I think I'd, I'd be impressed that I, that I had dreadlocks. I'd be impressed. The little things. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what kids are like. Yeah. You, you, you look at those things. I, I'd probably be impressed at, at the, um, the size of my arms because I was like, <laughs> I was big into like, you know, people's physique. So I'd be like, wow, he's got good arms. Yeah, I, I got. No, he's got good, no, I've got good arms. In terms of all the stuff that I've achieved, um, I think I'd probably be super happy, but mildly shocked. Uh, No, actually, very shocked, actually. I'd be really, really surprised. but I, I, I'd also think the, um, the, 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 brav, the bravado in me and the swagger in me would, would hide it and say, yeah, I knew I was gonna do that. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's probably kind of how I would have responded to it. But um, part of the reason why I'd been surprised that I'd achieved so much is kind of not, not anything to do with my disability or to do with being black even, 
more to do with class. Yeah. Um, because I think <clears throat> when you grew up in East London, we grew up, you know, as I started to make friends, and we grew up thinking that people from where we come from, uh, uh, and someone who I'd, I'd never went to university, I didn't go to a posh school, we don't end up being on TV. We don't end up um, becoming a high profile person. You know, that, that people from Plasto, from Upton Park, that doesn't happen to us. Um, so I would have just been really surprised. I would have been like, who did I pay off to get there? <laughs> <laughs> How did I do that? <laughs> kind of school days and you said you had this need to differentiate yourself when did sport come into play did you use sport as a crutch to do so or did you just follow a love and a passion for that so when we when I talk about this step-by-step -step progress um, and slowly understanding what I had to do to, to, to achieve the things that I wanted to achieve I, I think sport was something that came along um, for me and it was almost, it was the greatest enabler or discovery that a young kid in my position could have found. You know, I was searching, desperately searching for something. You know, I didn't know what I was searching for, but something that could make me stand out, that I was good at, that I could show the world um, you know, what I was about. Something that made you be heard. Yeah, something that, made, and recognized. something that gave me a voice, something that gave me um, the, the, the confidence um, and, and something, that would, something that would be a platform for me to be, uh, who, to be all that I could be. And do you think this is directly, this directly correlates to this internal monologue in your head of that responsibility of being successful. Yeah. That was planted there and you were looking to eagerly attach yourself to anything that would allow you to do so. Yeah, I, I think so. But I, I also think um, in terms of, you're right, I, I, I would have attached myself to anything, but I think probably sport was the best fit for me Why? at that point in time. Why? And what point was this? How old are you? Um, all right, so the first day of school, I, um, I, 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 I joined in a football match. I convinced the, the kids at the school to allow me to play in this football match. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't want me to play at all. One, because of the way I dressed, the way I looked, my accent, all of that. And they thought immediately that I would be rubbish at sport. Um, I ended up saving this this um, making this miraculous save from one of the best footballers in my school, um, which surprised everybody in the school, including myself. And I kind of- You knew. must have felt incredible. Yeah, it was. It was I felt on top of the world. Yeah, I felt 10 feet tall, literally, you know, but um, I always knew I had good hand-eye coordination and I was very, up, my upper body was really strong and I was, uh, and I was just really determined. And, I, and one thing that I've always been good at, you know, my mind drifts off in loads of directions all the time. I'm very easily distracted, but I can have moments of absolute clear focus. When does that come? And why? Um, I think when I know, I, I just have an innate sense of when focus is needed. When you need to switch on. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know what it is. Is there a pattern though? If you look back now and see all the times when that focus came on, can Maybe you see any possibly pattern? Possibly pressure. 
possibly when 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 I feel right, this is it. I need to prove to people. Social pr so social pressure or pressure on yourself? Both. Okay. It's both, and I, and that's it. I just I just click and and snap in there. But I think you know on top of that, yeah, going back to this save, um, what I then learned and how quickly I learned very quickly was how impressed the other kids were mm -hmm. at the school by my physical ability and, and, the, and the fact that I was good at sport. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, me be, being good at sport or this one moment of saving this goal meant that me being, uh, my race went out the window, my disability went out the window, the way I dressed went out the window. The only thing that was important was that I was good at sport. And as a young kid, I looked at that and I just thought, wow, you know, everyone likes me because I, I'm good at school, sport. The best fighter in our school, a guy called Spencer Greenfield, he came up to me and, he, and he's, I, I say this a lot when I do my, 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 my speeches, and he, this is a true story. He said to me, you know, um, Addy, or whatever your effing name is, if anyone says anything to you about your dodgy leg, your dodgy clothes, your dodgy hair, your dodgy name, come to me and I'll sort them out because you're one of us now. And I had like some of the strongest, hardest kids in the school. They loved me just because I was good at sport. And they, they were going around saying, no one messes with Addy. No one messes with Addy now. He's the one, he's the man. And they, they just took me under their wing. And, and like suddenly my confidence grew and I kind of looked at that and I just thought, look at this. This is all from the fact that I could save a ball or I had good hand-eye coordination. Yeah. This is nuts. It's kind of like you realize that's a way to get the peers who, correct me if I'm wrong, the peers who immediately kind of outcasted you to get their respect and to be heard by them. And growing up in the situation that you grow up, grew up in, that must have been an incredible moment to feel accepted. Acceptance, isn't that what we all want? Isn't it though? You know, you, you, you want acceptance, especially from your peers. You want, you want people to respect you. You know, you want people, you want people to, to understand you and, and, and to get you and, and that all of that I think comes under the umbrella of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And the moment you get that, even if it's only for a second, if it, even if it's only fleeting, it's very addictive. Yeah, so that, 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 that's the next point. Do you feel like, because I want to hear more about how you kind of continued on with your adventure in, in sport. Mm -hmm. But do you feel like that determination to carry on and get to eventually where you got to was in aid of kind of chasing that feeling that you got from saving that initial goal? Definitely. Yeah? Definitely. I think it was the, the initial high and I was, I was hooked on it. I was hooked on it, but I also, I, I also loved sport and I loved challenging myself. Um, and and trying to be as good as I possibly can be. I, 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 when I look back at this, and my brother and sister, we talk about this, and one of the things, I, I, I was absolutely nuts about, or determined and focused about being as good as I possibly could be. So at the moment after I made that save, most normal kids would go home you know, play some football with their friends, go home maybe, um, watch some TV, hang out, what I did is I went and got my parents to buy me a, um, a tennis ball or some tennis balls and I would sit at home 
on the floor in the living room and I'd throw a ball as hard as I could at the wall and try and catch it. I'd throw it, try and catch it with my right hand, try and catch it with my left hand and try and throw it and throw it even further and further out. And I would do two, three hours just doing this above my head. How did you feel while doing that? Just amazing. Amazing, and I just kept. Was it this? So was it a discovery? That goal? Yeah. Was that a discovery? That shit. I love sport. Yeah. I'm good at sport. This is my moment, and yeah. then everything clicked from there. Yeah, I think so. I think it, I think it was almost like um, a missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle for me. Um, and it's weird to say that at eight year old, at eight years old, I was searching for that missing piece in my in my jigsaw I, puzzle. But but I mean, sorry to, to interrupt, but one thing. That's why I realized that I am a little bit different from a lot of other people in terms of, I discovered what I wanted really early. That's what I was literally about to say. It's almost like you were lucky and in a position of privilege because you were able to discover and harness your passion, like your true passion at such a young age. But what's interesting, my observation is that passion was driven by that underlying responsibility that you felt and that was utilized for good so it's very very good um yeah that's that's a good summary yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I think so you it, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there um it was it probably was driven by that responsibility um and i think the two came together the the, the responsibility for me to to, to be successful and the passion for sport and the acceptance, all of those things coming together, I created this amazing um, potion, yeah. you know, that, 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 that cast a spell on me and, and made me who I am today. So do you feel like that responsibility that you had, do you feel like you made the most of that? Do you feel proud? I always feel like I can do better. You Why? Know, yeah, well, I, I think it's just the, the, the sports person in, in me, you know, I, I, and um, that's the thing with sport and, and it's this, why sport was so good for me is because it gave me, it laid down such a foundation and gave me so many skills that I've been able to transfer into other things. And one of those skills is to never rest on your laurels and to know that you can always be better. It's not just about... Um, wanting to be better or, or being better. It's, it's about actually having a hunger to be better, you know? And sometimes it's, it's all consuming and I have to control it. Yep. Um, otherwise, uh, I think the other day, I, I, I've stopped playing international basketball for almost, what's it, uh, it's 13 years now, mm -hmm. no, 14 years um, since I retired from international basketball. I play in the league, but it's kind of supposed to be just sort of like part-time because I'm working as well. But I Tyler, yeah, shout out Tyler. Yeah, shout out Tyler, <laughs> big man T. Um, but I was training on, on, on Saturday and I, I'd set myself goals and I'd set myself a time to train. But I really struggled to get off the court because I just kept feeling I need to get better, I can get better. And I'm 46 years old, um, I'm only training for the league. It's not like I'm training to go for GB, but I know regardless of whether I've got to win a gold medal or whether it's for the London Titans or whether it's for me, I always, I, I can't get rid of it. I have to be the best that I can be. When did that self-awareness come? 
when did it, when did you realize that was a unique personality trait to you? Uh, the day when I spent six hours shooting on a basketball court and training on a basketball court and in my mind I was only supposed to spend an hour and a half and in my mind I said I'm gonna leave now but just after I've made this next shot. How old were you? Probably about 17, 18. So it's quite young. Yeah. So then how did you use the awareness of that drive inside of you? Um, how did you leverage that once you became aware of it? Um, Mm. How did I leverage it? I don't think I, I knew how to leverage it. And I, I think I still haven't probably um, harnessed it enough. I, I, I suppose I stumbled on on the, the, the skill or the, the, the benefits of having that kind of passion when I started um, when I had an opportunity to work in TV, mm -hmm. uh, and um, you know, and people started giving me scripts, or people started saying to me, "We want you to start doing pieces to camera and stuff like that." And I initially, I would be okay. What is this? Once I learned it, then I started just delving deeper into it and thinking, "How can I do this better?" And I started thinking to myself, actually. I don't want to do a piece to camera or, the, or, or, or speak to camera and explain something in the words that the director's given me because when I look down the camera, I want to be speaking to my friends. I want to be speaking to a young person like me. So I need to speak and I need to communicate to them in a way that they understand. Authentic. That, uh, yeah, and that I understand. And I think that is me having that process from sport, understanding that I've got to be better. Mm -hmm. I can't just accept what other people say. I've got to be better. I've got to, I can't, I, I, I've got to think for myself and try and improve on what other people give me. Okay. So tell me more about when you started your journey into wheelchair basketball. Mm -hmm. What was that moment? Do you remember that moment when you first discovered it, heard about it, played it? What was that like? Um, so I was in a Tesco shopping trolley. Nice. Being raced down the streets um, by my mates. Um, because when I used to try and get around on calipers, uh, I, I used to stumble on a what, bit. sorry? Calipers. So I wore, um, up until I was about 12 years old, I wore uh, these iron rods, which went into hospital boots. Yeah. Um, and they're called calipers, if you've ever seen Forrest yeah, Gump. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene in Forrest Gump when he's run, running. Run, Forrest, run. Yeah, run, Forrest, run. And he runs and those rods break off yeah. his legs. I wish that happened to me. I mean, <laughs> I tried to do that, I fall flat on my face. But, How old were you when that film came out? Um, yeah, I was an old person. Before. I was older than you. Anyway, when, I, when Forrest Gump, I can't remember. For, but that's a, that's a good film for me. I love that. I film. love Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah. I watch it once every year yeah, without got, fail, which is a great little feel good. Yeah, you got to watch Forrest Gump. It's a good, feel good movie and, you know, that whole innocence and stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, I used to wear those, that, those calipers and I couldn't move that quickly. And my mates, we were always getting up to trouble. And we yep. thought the best way to get around was in, in shopping trolleys. And I got spotted by some physiotherapists who were based in East London. Um, and they'd set up a wheelchair basketball team or wheelchair basketball club. Um, it's kind of very, uh, very, what's the word? I would say very 
socialist name of the Association of Wheelchair Children. Um, it was called, <laughs> this was back in the 80s, but one of the, the umbrella club under this, um, under this club was a basketball team called the Newham Rollers. And they, they'd set up this- That's a cool name. Yeah, that, but they'd set up the Association of Wheelchair Children um, because they wanted to create this club for people with disabilities where they would take you, uh, take you away and take you out of your comfort zone on holidays and take you in, and give you opportunities to play sport, to give you confidence because they felt that sport gave you confidence and going away on holidays would give you independence. And these two physiotherapists, one was called Owen McGee and the other one was called K. Owen. And they totally, they worked at a disabled school in East London in Canning Town called Elizabeth Fry and they totally believed in independence for people with disabilities and they what they'd seen um, in working in the school environment on in the disabled school environment is that a lot of kids with disabilities were wrapped up in cotton wool by their parents and wrapped up in cotton wool by the school and the schools that they went to didn't give them the uh, the the it didn't give them the the the, the training the the equipment that they needed to cope with life. Mm -hmm. um, and they wanted to do it. Um, they, they wanted to create a club that would do this. For do you know why? What drove them to do that? Um, they're just amazing people. Maybe, it, it, you know, sometimes you meet these people and I, and I, I didn't get a chance to, um, Kay passed away um, quite a few years ago from cancer. Owen's still alive, but we're, because um, I've been so busy and I live on the other side of London we haven't really spoken a lot but I think they were they were people who are very what well, I'm trying to think of the word subversive they were very much against the system okay. right and they always wanted to kick against the system and the system was if you were disabled you went to a school for kids with disabilities you learned this in this in a certain style and then you probably wasn't good enough to get a job so you became uh, you they gave you basket weaving skills something that you could not use in your life at all and they were like this is absolute bollocks you know these kids need a proper life and they need proper um, they need to be given proper skills that's going to help them for the future um, and they spotted me um, they were dropping off some other kids from an event and they just so happened that Owen lived about three or four blocks away from me, spotted me as I was being raced through the streets in the shopping trolley. They'd read about me because I did a sponsored walk from my school and I was in a local paper, the Newham Recorder. They wanted me to join their club. They didn't know how quite to approach me. And then they approached me as I was in the shopping trolley and asked me if I'd like to play wheelchair basketball. What was your immediate reaction? Get the fuck out of there. <laughs> Excuse the language. I was like, really? Like, one, they looked odd. Like, listen, you're, I was probably about 11, 10, 11 at the time. Um, uh, uh, two older people who looked pretty out of it. They, like, Owen had this massive beard. Kay had this flowery shirt. They were like, new age hippies type people. Um, uh, they, they, they weren't, they didn't look cool to me. Um, and then on top of that, you know, not only are they strangers, not only don't they look cool, they're asking me if I want to play wheelchair basketball, which back in the 80s, no one had heard of. And using a wheelchair was just seen as just 
a backward step for me. There was no way I was going to get in a wheelchair. I was like thinking, why are they trying to get me in a wheelchair? Are they trying to get me out of my able-bodied school and, and, and make me, and make, had the teachers said to, to someone that I couldn't cope? And were they trying to get me into a disabled school? At, at this point in your peer group in school, was that a happy environment for you? Yeah, yeah, I was. I was. I was. You were in a good place. I was. I was the man. Yeah. You no, know, I was the man at the time. Were you still yeah. wearing pink suits? Yeah, I was. I wasn't wearing pink suits, but I was trying to like wear what we um, things that the things that were big then were like Farrah's trousers and um, uh, Sergio Tashini tracksuits. You know, I'd borrow them off my mates because I couldn't afford them. You know, you just and in East London you had to look cool, and it was just the beginning of when trainers were getting yeah. were coming in. You know, so yeah, I was uh, Reebok trainers were coming. So it was all about all of that, and and hip hop was starting to get big. So everyone was wearing those those what was those those roughly tracksuits, which you know you, if you came near a flame you'd probably um explode or something like that but yeah that was what it was all about um and and to to then suddenly be asked to try out wheelchair basketball i thought this is just a massive insult yeah. who are these people what do they want i was really scared actually. how long did it take for you to come around about five six months okay um what 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 took what took it to to get you to fall in love with it uh they literally dragged me kicking and screaming to a place called Stoke Mandeville. Did your parents um, agree with it? Did yeah, they? well, they said to my parents that, um, yeah, that the sport that I was going to do would have um, a good form of medical rehabilitation for me. Um, my parents were still like, hooked on the, fact, on the idea that one day I might be cured and that I'd be able to walk again. Did they instill um, that belief in you? Yeah, my, they did. They did. My parents um, said to me, uh, and they were very religious, and they said, you know, if you if you if you prayed and you believed in God, and I used to do my um, the the Lord's prayer every morning and uh, and, and stuff. And my mum used to rub all these ointments on my legs and stuff. And I thought, yeah, one day I, I'd, I'd be able to walk. How but, did that How did that idea of hope serve you when you were growing up? Was it kind of a bit of a comfort or no it was um it was hard yeah. in all honesty it was it, it, it was hard because you know when you um when when your parents are saying if you if you believe in god if you believe hard enough that you'll be able to walk and this isn't their fault this is just the the the, the um belief set that they had um but what the way it trend it it transferred to me is that i thought maybe i wasn't worthy in God's eyes, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I'd done something wrong, and I was just like really angry. I was like, "What have I done wrong? Why? Why can't I walk? Why will I never be able to walk? Why am I different?" So that was quite frustrating for me in a way. But I mean, I, I think I was able to deal with that and park that and 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 move on. Um, and actually, getting back to 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 how I got into to wheelchair basketball and what was the turning point. One, I got dragged kicking and screaming to Stoke Mandel, but also I'd met some of the other kids in this basketball club, disabled kids, and they were the coolest people I've ever met. Yeah, what was they, cool about them? They were all just outsiders who didn't give an F about the world or society or what anyone thought about them. You know, one of the guys in, 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 in the team, a guy called Salim, was just, big muscular guy in a wheelchair 
pushed around the streets. If anyone looked at him, he'd barged them out the way. And I was just like, I just love the swagger. These guys had so much, all these disabled kids that I met um, when I was 11, 12, they had way more swagger than any of my friends at school. Was it the first time that you were really exposed to positive role models that were close to home? Yeah. Yeah, that in terms of people who were like me, I looked at them and I just thought, wow, these, these guys are like me, but they're just so much cooler than me, so much more confident than me. Um, they get into do so many more amazing things than me. And, and, and what wheelchair basketball and what sport did was it took me out of East London. I was in this very narrow um, place uh, where there was a small friendship group, small peer group of people who we, 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 we'd go to Green Street, we'd hang out on the Barking Road. You, you lived within a mile radius and you never went out of that. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, I was um, convinced to start playing wheelchair basketball and go to Stoke Mandeville. And I ended up going to a place called Ellsbury um, and uh, in Buckinghamshire uh, to, to, to Stoke Mandeville. And I suddenly met middle-class white people who had loads of stuff. You know, they, were, they had like the best basketballs, they had best trainers, they were in cool wheelchairs, they spoke differently. I, it, it was literally, I felt like I'd gone to another world when I went there, drove nice did cars. Did you feel out of depth or did you love it? Were you in your element? A, a bit of both, you know, uh, but I, 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 I was fascinated more than out of my depth. I was just fascinated at, fascinated at this new world this new place that I was discovering, where the rules were slightly different, you know, and, and actually people had a bigger growth mindset mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, they didn't have limitations. People were talking about things like the Paralympics. People were talking about winning medals, traveling the world. I'd never heard of that growing up in East London. I'd never, none of my expanded friends- Expanded your horizons. Yeah, it did it massively. You know, my mates were just talking about getting jobs in East London. Well, they say, and I so believe it, you're a sum of the five people you spend most of your time with. If you're in an environment like people who are very ambitious, mm -hmm. naturally, because of the way that we work as human beings, we will strive to want the same things. Well, there you go. I mean, sport gave me that, it was that door, it opened that door into this world of people with ambition. You know, and people not just only w with ambition, but with an ambitious mindset as well. So did you always have ambition? You just didn't know how far yeah. you could reach? Yeah, I always did. I, I was probably seen like by the other kids. I was on the edge, you know, <laughs> the, the, the big kids, the, 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 the guys who are probably the bullies tolerated me because um, I was funny and because I was good at sport. But um, they probably looked at me as a cocky shit because I was always thinking there's more. Self-confident. Yeah, I was self-confident, but I was always thinking there's more. Just take a step backwards. Where, and I don't know if we've covered this, mm -hmm. that self-confidence, where did that come from? Because there is a thin line between arrogance and self-confidence. Yeah, there is. There and you is. need self-confidence. Where did that come from? I think my confidence has always come from hard work and I, I didn't believe that I was better than people, or, or I didn't believe that I was better than anyone um, just because I was born better than them. I just felt that I'd spent 
more time throwing the ball against the wall and catching it than any of my mates. So, you know, I should be good at saving the ball. You know, I, spent, I, I, I worked on my fitness. I would run on my calipers to do fit. I'd do press ups at home. You know, I got my mates who lived on my block. We created this this um, race where we'd run around the blocks and we'd time each other. Um, I convinced my parents to buy me a BMX bike, and I and I got my mates to help me learn how to buy how to ride a bike. I strapped my left leg on the pedal. We got a load of newspapers. My dad loved reading um, loads of the, all the broadsheets, so we'd get all the newspapers and we'd stuff it under my shirt. So I so when I fell off the bike, I had padding. You know, I was padded by the Guardian and the Times, which is which is which is great. Um, and uh, and I just got fit that way, and and I felt fitness gave me independence. So if I was fit, if I was strong, I didn't have to rely on anybody, and so I had that confidence from that. The pride, yeah. You were proud of what you were doing and the work you were putting in, yeah. And that and, translated, and, yeah, to and, and that was it. And it was it was confidence, and maybe other people might have seen it as arrogance, as being cocky, but it was just. I knew I could back it up. That's the difference. That is the difference. Yeah, I, I knew whatever I was saying to people that I, I could do, or I was going to do, I could do it. But other people were just like, oh, he's just talking shit. And then, <laughs> then I'd save a, a shot, or I'd be brave and take someone out, you know, or I, or I wouldn't, I would stand up for myself. And then people were like, oh yeah, well, yeah, he can back it up. Back in wheelchair basketball, uh -huh. when did things start to become real? And how was that? By real, I mean, when was that moment where you were like, yep, fuck it, I'm all in. This is what I'm dedicating my life to. Um, probably 14 or 15. What led to you making that decision and what was the impact of that decision? I was just surrounded by, um, I, I, I suddenly had a different peer group. I, I met some guys who played for the Great Britain wheelchair basketball team um, and I saw these guys, they were just incredible in terms of they were the first disabled people who I'd seen who I didn't see their disability and I just saw as elite athletes because I looked at their physiques, biggest arms I'd ever seen, the way they moved on the court. It was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. I, I was just in awe of, of, of these guys and I wanted to be like them. And they spoke to me. They saw me. You know, I think the disability group or the disability um, world, especially in sport and especially back in the 80s, was very small. You know, and you see someone else who's coming up, um, young person, I think people felt like this is a family and we have to nurture them. And that, I think those guys saw me in that way you know it's like shit there's another young kid you know he's like 13 14 and he loves the game and also there's something about wheelchair basketball maybe the disability sport that just gets under your skin it's a culture it's it's not just about uh, and certainly then maybe it's different now but it's certainly then because we were such a small and such uh, a sport that not many people knew about you carried yourself with us in a certain way, and you knew there weren't that many others. There weren't many others like you. You know, and, unique. Yeah, you were unique, and you knew you were going into this new 
cool world that had its own language. We talked about wheelchairs in a certain way. We talked about, you know, the types of moves on the basketball court in a certain way. We could be around people in the UK, but seemed like we were from another planet because of the because we were in our own culture, um, and 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 it was and it was really it was amazing. It was amazing to meet those people and and also not just the guys who were in the GB team, the guys who were just below that GB team, I sort of hung, hung around. There was a couple of them who were about four years older than me and they were on the cusp of getting in the team. But they took me under the wing. They, they had cars, they were sort, so they were like 16, 17, 18, and they were driving. Um, and they'd pick me up and take me to training. And they were always talking about um, getting selected for the next Paralympics. They were always talking about trying to get into a, a, a foreign team uh, or go to America and get a scholarship and play basketball there. And I just kept hearing that stuff and thinking, well, if they're doing that, that's what I want to do. Because you aspire to be like that. Yeah, I was just like, I want to be like Sinclair. I want to be like Blakey. I want to be like Roddy, you know? Those guys, they drive cool cars. They're, they're in the sickest wheelchairs I've ever seen. You know, they've got mad ability on the court and they're traveling the world. What's not to like? No. Yeah, it was like that. And, and, and it, it got to the stage where I'd go back to school and going back to school was so bland and boring, mm. you know, because I'd go back to school and it'd be all these like lessons that I felt like I was trapped in the class. And no one around you really could understand what nah, you were going through. Nah, and you my, couldn't really even communicate nah, into words nah, about your feelings. Exactly. Feeling. My mate would, when Paul had just come back from Italy playing a basketball tournament in Sardinia. Cine was talking about going off to, to America to play basketball. And Blakey was just getting this brand new quickie chair that he'd got sponsorship from, which cost like 1,500 pounds. And they were driving the newest cars because they um, got mobility allowance to get these cars. I was just like, this, 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 this is it. This is the life. So then, all right, so when, what happened in the events leading up to you getting in the GB team? When did, how old are you? Uh, okay, so I got into the GB, so it was progression. I got into GB junior squad when I was about 17, 18. Um, and then I was on the, probably on the, on, on the squad, the GB squad, not in the team that would be selected for tournaments, around about when I was 20. Um, and I, I mean, I, uh, my life was kind of pretty intense then as well, because I'd left home when I was 16. How come? Uh, because my dad didn't want me to play basketball. Uh, he didn't want me to play wheelchair basketball. He wanted me to go to university and study, which is what most... How long was that rift happening for? Yeah, it was happening for a long period of time. You know, I, I'd, when I was 15, I was always, I, I also did powerlifting. I didn't really want to do powerlifting, but the powerlifting association really, they just thought I had a lot of talent because I was very light. I didn't have much body weight and I was really strong. And I was British junior champion. Um, and record holder when I was 15. And I got selected for the, uh, the, the, the Great Britain team to go to the Miami Junior World Weightlifting, Powerlifting Championships when I was 15. I told my dad and he said I couldn't go. He said I couldn't go because he's, I had my mock exams coming up. And he said I had to prepare for my GCSEs. How did you react to that? I was gutted. I was but how did you, were you nervous. angry, upset? Did you, yeah, how was, did you I, react? I was, I was all of the above, angry, upset. But I think 
what you know when I said earlier I have this ability to have extreme focus and it just came and I just from that moment I just thought I need to I need to devise a plan if I'm gonna do what I want to do if I'm gonna be successful I need to find a way out of this and I spoke to a few friends and they said to me uh, you should write a letter forge your dad's signature, say that he's kicked you out of the house um, because you're disabled, the council are not going to let you go homeless. You'll get a house. And I was like, yeah, it's a cool idea. So I wrote, I mean, kind of naivety and exuberance mm -hmm. of youth, but... Fifteen? Uh, yeah, you were 15? Yeah, 15, 16. So I wrote this letter um, with, my, with the help of my mates, forged my dad's signature, we sent it to the council, and it took about eight, nine months um, and during this time, Owen and Kay, the two physios, they'd bought me for my 16th birthday, they bought me uh, 10 driving lessons because they, they were big on this independence with mm -hmm. disability. And all their kids, they bought driving lessons when they were of the age. And when you're disabled, you're allowed to learn to drive at 16. Um, so I uh, took these driving lessons, passed my test, um, applied for a car, got a car, um, about two months before the council offered me a house, a flat, um, and then just left. How was that when you left? How did that conversation go? What I didn't speak to my parents, I just left. One day I was home. What was the rationale behind that? Because I knew they wouldn't let me leave. Um, and, they, and I knew they wouldn't let me try to, or go to achieve what I wanted to achieve. So I was just like, you know what? I've got, I've got to get out. So I, I, I got the house, I'd got the um, car, um, and I, I was getting some benefits, not much at all, because I was really crap and not really into like signing on for money. So I was on literally the minimum amount of money and I'd got given a grant and I just moved out. And the council sent a social worker because they were like so worried about me. I'm like, I'm a 16 year old disabled kid on my own in, in a council flat. Like they, they, they would send this woman. The only thing that was, the, the funny thing was, she was actually quite fit. And I was like, <laughs> my social worker is, is hot, you know? But she was more concerned with whether I was like, um, okay. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I was fine. I was, I was I'd go over to West Ham Park um, I'd been helped to raise money for my um, sports, my own sports wheelchair, and I'd train over West Ham um, Park. I think I was very naive as well because I was living in a, I'd moved into an area that was pretty dodgy. Mm -hmm. You know, there were um, there were drug dealers at the top of my road. There was all sorts of crap going on, but I was so focused. I'd go to the basketball court, sweep off all the glass and all the nonsense, and just shoot and then go to training. I didn't have much money. I'd put two pounds of petrol in my, my Renault Clio. I'd put it in neutral going down hills to save on petrol, get to training, train, train. I, I, I phoned up um, Wanted Sports Centre, got to know the um, people that worked there and got to um, get them to call me whenever the, the sports hall was free and mm -hmm. no one was there. And then I'd go in and I'd train and I just kept training. And that was, so from about 15, um, from the moment I was told I couldn't go to the Miami World Championships, that was it. I had a plan and I put it in action. Um, but it did take 
I didn't get into the squad, into I didn't get into the team. I wasn't selected for the national team until I was 26. Oh wow, yeah. that's a long time. A long time. 11 years of yeah, well, going for, all yeah. in. Yeah, it was, it was. How well, did you, how did you not give up? What kept mm, you going? Really good question. Um, so many things, so many things. I mean, I, I wanted to give up many occasions and there's plenty of times when I thought, Am I doing the right thing? And I was re and there was plenty of times when I was really lonely. Um, not lonely in terms of not having friends, but lonely in terms of I was on a journey that no one, there was... It's your ambition. Yeah, it was my ambition, but it was a journey where I don't think anyone else had done it. Or I didn't know anyone else who was going through the same thing as I was going through. You know, I had people who supported me, you know, Owen and Kay were brilliant. They helped me out when I was short of money. I'd go to different friends' houses to eat um, when I didn't have money to, to, to be able to eat. Um, I got ill quite a lot because I, I was broke so much. My parents were sick and worried about me, but I used to hide so they wouldn't know where, the, the, it took them a while to find out where I lived. Um, but it was, it was quite lonely because I just knew that this journey was something that I was take, taking on board on my own, and there was no blueprint. Mm -hmm. There was no one else. All, the, all my other friends. Was that were scary to you, or was, yeah, it motiva really or was it motivating? It was. It was really scary, but I think it was. I was got to a stage where I had no choice. Now, I was at the. Um, I was. I was on this rickety bridge which had broken planks and slats all the way through, but I was in the middle of it. And it was just as dangerous to go back as it was to go forward. So you say it was fear that kept you going? Or more than that? More than that. More than that. It was a combination of fear, a combination of determination. And every time um, I had a setback, every time I felt like things weren't going right, I would play basketball. And the love and the enjoyment of playing it and my friends. You know, when I was on the basketball court, everything was okay. Everything was okay. What, why? Try and explain that if you can, that feeling. Because there's no judgment on the basketball court. There's, it's just you. It's just you. It's your ability. You're in control of the situation. It's your talent. It's, it, it, it's everything that you've worked for um, that, that's there. It's, it's almost this, this Nirvana-like environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that 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 just takes you away from everywhere, and 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 I felt at peace, and then I'd come off it, and I'd go home, and I'd be a little bit depressed, a little bit down, um, but then I'd pick myself up and and play basketball again. Then I had some friends, and I got into into raving. I partied a little bit and <laughs> in, enjoyed that as well. So that sort of gave me a little bit off the court, but my my whole focus actually apart from that enjoyment of being on the court was i really wanted to be a paralympian desperately wanted to be a paralympian desperately wanted to go to the games uh, and wear the gb vest um and 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 win a medal there was nothing there was nothing else i wanted nothing else i wanted and nothing else could get in my way i'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd start writing a plan without even turning on the lights of what I would do, how I was going to train, what I was going to eat, everything, every day. Were your routines back then measured down to the second? 
Not down to the second because I didn't have the knowledge, um, but I was trying to learn on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I, I did, I, I think I suppose that's why I'm, I'm quite, I'm a very independent person now. And I, and I can do a lot of these travel programs and travel to a lot of remote places. Um, and I'm fine about it because I spent so much of my time on my own, fending for myself, mm-hmm. doing my own thing. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I was fine with that. Okay. So fast forward yeah. a few years, mm-hmm. bronze, silver, gold medals. Mm. <laughs> How did you feel when you received that first medal? I think actually before the, the, the medals, it was actually getting into the squad was probably a bigger feeling than all of it because I'd spent, it, it's taken me the best part of 11, 12 years to get into the squad um, and during that time, I was being told that I wasn't good enough constantly by the coaches. I had my parents saying that I was crazy um, because I was trying to do something that they believed wasn't possible. Um, and it felt like it was me against the world. So to finally achieve it and get there and to have done it, not on my own, because I had yeah. loads of enablers along the way, um, but, you know, I, I look back now and just think, I'm, I was bonkers. You know, like a 16 year old kid, 1989, to go out, live on his own, and not have a clue about life. I didn't really know how to cook. I didn't really know how to take care of myself. But I just decided that I was going to try and make it into this squad. And when I did, it was just overwhelming. When I made it into the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Do you remember the exact moment when you heard? Yeah, I do, I do. I remember the, the, the letter. And I can what still was your see reaction? the letter. I, I was just... I was just... I, it, it was overwhelming. It was like the greatest... It was. It was the greatest moment of my life. It was like Christmas, birthdays. It was like everything's rolled into one. It was the biggest amount of satisfaction, but it was also a lot of fear as well in the fact that there is a fear that when you chase something and then you finally get it, you know, maybe it might not live up to everything or maybe I might not live up to uh, what, what I was trying to achieve. Um, but then going on, fast forwarding two years later, winning a silver medal at the World Championships in Japan, um, I remember when, we, when we, we beat Australia in overtime to go into the final and realised that me, this kid who was born in Lagos, Nigeria, who was probably written off by so many people uh, with a disability um, and, and who left home at 16 and was told constantly that it was not good enough, I was going to play with my team in a final against the USA I had got into this elite group, the best, you know, 12, 15 players in the world. It was nuts, bonkers. <laughs> and I was at the peak of my powers, I'd say between 2002 and 2000. I mean, I, for, I was as good as I could have been then. Mm-hmm. And to, to be on top of the world like that is just, whoa. Oh. But if I may, what about 
afterwards. Do you agree in the quote, the worst thing you can do is achieve your dreams because you're working so hard to achieve something and then afterwards you need to cope with the fact that maybe something's... No. No? You don't, no, you don't no, believe in that? No, no, I think, I think achieving your dreams... What's, what's so incredible about achieving your dreams is that you can then go on to achieve more dreams. Why, achieve, why try and achieve one dream when you can achieve 10 dreams? You know, what's the point in that? Uh, I, and I think that's what it's all about. It's about continuing to keep, pu keep pushing your boundaries. If I just focused on one dream, I would have stopped at that safe uh, when I was eight years old. You know, I, 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 I kept going and I would never have gone on to become a TV presenter, yep. travel the world, um, host the Paralympics, help the, help, um, the UK win the Paralympics, write books, and, and who knows what else I will go on to achieve. I think you just got to keep going. At what point did you receive your MBE? 2005, um, November 2005, I think it was November 25th. I, do you know what, one of the reasons why I remember, it's quite sad, because um, I think it was the day George Best passed away. I think I remember seeing it in the news um, and just thinking, it was just such a surreal day. Mm -hmm. um, that was the day when I went in and officially received it. Finding out that I got the MBE, my sister called me, um, I was uh, preparing for the Paralympic World Cup. Um, it was the day before we won gold at the Paralympic World Cup. Did you Cup, know it was coming? No, not a clue. MBE, I, 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 I had to, <laughs> like, like, Google wasn't that strong back then, but if it, if it was, I would have Googled what an MBE was. <laughs> I, I kind when of, you found out, what was your reaction? I, I was the kid just, dressed up in flamboyant suits, yeah, eager just, to get people's attention and, and to command respect or fucking MBE, that's crazy. I was just, this is surreal. I was like, this doesn't happen to people like me. My sister was just screaming when she opened the letter and it said, because initially when she said, she said, there's a letter that's come, because it went to my parents' house, and she said, it's got um, a sign from, it's sealed by the prime minister. Um, <laughs> and, I was, and I was like thinking- It was a prank. Well, I was thinking shit. Have I paid my taxes? Or say, no, I think, have I, have I done, have I had too many parking fines and are they finally going to get me or saying? Um, but then when she read it, I was like, I'm not hearing this. This is an out-of-body experience. What, what is this all about? Um, it, was, it was just, just nuts. And then she said to me, it, it said in the letter, you weren't, I wasn't allowed to tell anybody until I officially received it. So I then had to go and play the rest of this tournament without telling any of my teammates or my friends. Um, that, that, I mean, subsequently we went on to win, beat Australia in the final the next day. So I kind of forgot about it because I hit the shot to win the game and, and stuff like that, which was, which was bonkers as well. But then to go on and, and, and collect an MBE and for my parents, it was just incredible. It was the time, I, th I think it was, one of a few other times where they started to really understand that I was going to be okay mm -hmm. and that, you know, maybe this journey that we'd been on together, which we hadn't always agreed on, um, you know, was the right journey. It must have been an incredible feeling for you. Yeah. Just, justification. Yeah. Well, for yourself and the people closest to you. I didn't, I didn't really feel like, like that. I felt happy for my parents. You know, my dad was crying in Buckingham Palace. Um, my mum was just, yeah, she was just 
wrought with emotion because uh, she, she said it to me. She said she, it, that my parents grew up in a village um, in a place called Ogun State, which is about an hour outside of uh, Lagos. And, they, and, and my mum said she remembered when the Queen came to the UK, I mean, to, to Lagos, mm -hmm. um, and she wanted to go and see um, to Lagos. And her parents said, oh, we can't afford to go to Lagos. She said never in her wildest dreams did she feel she was going to go to Buckingham Palace, to the Queen's house. I mean, it was Prince Charles who gave us the award that day because she was away, but it was still Buckingham Palace for my parents, you know, from uh, a, a village that had a few hundred people to, to, to that place. So, yeah, I, I, I just felt really happy for them. Just tell us about what you're doing now with your children's writing mm. um, and why you're doing it and what you've got out today that you want people to know about. Well, I mean, I was approached, uh, well, actually, a couple of years ago, I decided to write an autobiography, um, but I needed a publisher. Uh, so my agent said to me, write a chapter and we'll send it a test chapter out to a few people. We sent it out to a few publishers and a couple came, well, one came back mainly, uh, Bonnier, and they said, we love what you've written, but we think it would have even more resonance if you, trans if you turned it into a kid's book. And I was initially sort of thinking, oh, is that, is that some of my life, a children's book? <laughs> um, and th they just said, look, Right now, in the children's book world, uh, there are very few diverse books. There are not many books with, uh, written by black authors or authors from a BAME background, um, or books with league protagonists that are disabled, um, or, or books with league protagonists that are, 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 are black. And they said, you could play a really important part in that. And also, that young boys don't read that much. So they packed me off. With, this, with all this information, and I just suddenly thought, wow, that's pretty heavy. I, I went and wrote a, a few chapters, they loved it, and then they gave me a, a three book deal. And last year, I wrote my first uh, children's book, and it's called um, Cyborg Cat and the, Rise, and the Rise <laughs> of the Parsons Road Gang. It is my baby, um, you know, it's loosely based on the events of my life. But, I mean, one of the really important things, I think, uh, about this book is I'm trying to say to everybody that each and every one of us has a superhero inside of us. You know, um, the cyborg cat is my alter ego. It's the superhero that I find in myself. Um, if we search deep enough, if we work hard enough and we believe in ourselves, we will find that superhero. We, are all, we all have it. And it's not just me saying it. And that's um, kind of what Cyborg Cat and the Rise of the Parsons Road Gang is about. And also, I was told by a very, very clever journalist that there are window books um, and there are mirror books. You know, window books are books that you get to see into another person's world. And mirror books are books which reflect your own world. And I wanted to create a book where every child sees themselves in. And so this Cyborg Cat, Rise of Parsons Road Gang, is out now. And on October the 3rd, part two of this series, Cyborg Cat and the Night Spider, where Cyborg Cat takes on a new nemesis, uh, the no Night spoilers. Spider. No spoilers. Yes. Uh, comes out on October the 3rd and all of the first year's profits for that second book go to BBC Children in Need. Amazing. Yeah. What would your advice be to anyone who has a dream or any goals which society or their family 
don't think is achievable, but they've got the pure passion and drive to get it done, what would your advice be? I, I mean, it's a no-brainer. I would always say, go for it. I'd also always say, go for it. I'd say, one, because you don't want to be that person who is sitting in the pub 20, 30 years from now saying to your friends, I could have been somebody. I could have done that. You, don't, you, you want to live your life with no regrets. It, to me, I think that would be the most painful thing if I looked back and said, I was too scared to go for my dreams. Um, and I just settled for what the world wanted me to have. Don't settle, never settle. Cool. So we're going to end the podcast with three power questions okay. that we end every single one in. Power questions. Ready? <laughs> from the gut, from the heart, say whatever comes to mind first. Mm-hmm. Um, and we won't dwell on it. Answer, move on. Okay. If you could give your 20 year old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, whatever it is you want to do, go for it, but go even bigger. Double it, double it. There's no, there's absolutely no limit. It can't be just, I want this. You've got to want more. What do you want your hypothetical great-grandchildren to remember you for? As somebody who in their own little way made a difference. Okay. And lastly, finish the sentence, the world needs more empathy. On that note, Ade, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed that. I could have gone on. I feel like I touched 20% of everything I wanted to cover. Um, I really, really enjoyed that. Legend. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers, Toby. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching and being part of the P-Squared community. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for more of the same content. Through the journeys, insights, ideas and stories of our guests, we hope to propel you forward to execute on your goals and help you achieve a bright shift in this world. Till next time.